account of John Hamilton, Esquire, who was tried in Scotland for murder and beheaded. This offender was born in the county of Clydesdale, and was related to the ducal family of Hamilton. His parents, to whom he was an only son, sent him to Glasgow to study the law, but the young gentleman's disposition leading him to the profession of arms, his friends exerted their interest to procure him a commission. But the intervention of the crime of which we are about to relate the particulars prevented their generous intention taking effect. Young Hamilton, soon becoming connected with some abandoned young gentlemen at Edinburgh, he lost considerable sums at gaming, and going to his parents for more, they supplied him for the present, but said they would not advance him any farther sums while he continued his dissipated course of life. Being possessed of this money, Hamilton went to a village near Glasgow to meet his companions at a public house kept by Thomas Arkell. Having drank and gamed for several successive days and nights, Hamilton's companions left him while he was asleep, leaving him to discharge the bill, which exceeded his ability. A quarrel ensued between him and Arkell, and while they contended, Arkell stripped Hamilton's sword from the scabbard. The latter immediately ran away, but finding he had no scabbard to his sword, he instantly went back to the house, when Arkell, calling him several scandalous names, he stabbed him so that he was instantly expired. The daughter of Arkell, being present, attempted to seize Hamilton, in doing which she tore off the skirt of his coat, which was left on the floor, together with his sword, on his effecting a second escape. This daughter of Arkell was almost blind, but her keeping the sword and the skirt of the coat proved the means of bringing Hamilton to justice. The murderer, having gone to Leith, embarked on board a ship and landed in Holland, where he continued two years, but his parents dying in the interval, he returned to Scotland when he was taken into custody on account of the murder. On his trial he pleaded that he was intoxicated at the time the fact was committed, to which he was instigated by the extreme ill-usage he had received from Arkell. The jury, not allowing the force of these arguments, found him guilty, and he was sentenced to be beheaded by the maiden, to give a description of which instrument may be grateful to our readers. The town of Halifax in Yorkshire, having been anciently famous for the manufacture of woolen cloths, a law was made for the protection of the property of the manufacturers, by which it was ordained that persons convicted of stealing cloth from the tenter grounds should be executed immediately after being convicted before two justices of the peace. Whatever the necessity there might appear for enacting the law in question, we cannot but lament that any Englishman should suffer without the formality of a trial by jury. The machine by which persons thus convicted were executed was constructed in the following manner. Quote, Two strong wooden beams were fixed on a scaffold, and between them, in a traverse form, ran another beam, to the lower side of which was affixed a sharp instrument in the form of a chopping-knife, with a large quantity of lead on the upper part. The criminal put his neck between the two side-beams, and the cross-beam, being drawn by a pulley, was suffered to fall down, 
and the head was severed from the body in a moment. End quote. The Earl of Morton, Regent of Scotland, returning from the court of Queen Elizabeth in the year 1574, saw this machine at Halifax, and had a model taken of it, with a view to the execution of such of the Scottish nobility as should oppose his measures. But it happened that his lordship was the first who suffered by this mode of execution, whence it was called the Maiden. After this many persons of rank in Scotland were executed by this machine, but Mr. Hamilton, of whom we are now writing, was the last who yielded his life in this manner, and the instrument of death is now kept in a room adjacent to the council chamber in Edinburgh. After Mr. Hamilton received sentence of death, his friends made great interest to procure a pardon, but their endeavours proving ineffectual, he suffered death by the mode above mentioned on the 30th of June, 1716. At the place of execution he owned that he had killed Arkell, but presumed to think he was justified on the principle of self-defence. Mr. Hamilton's case will teach us to reflect on the sad consequences of keeping bad company and an attachment to gaming. But for these vices he might have lived happy in himself and a credit to the worthy family from which he was descended. The youth who will devote those hours to the gaming table, which he ought to employ in the honest advancement of his fortune, can expect only to be reduced to beggary at the best, but in a thousand instances, as well as the present, the consequences have been much more fatal. Hence, let young gentlemen learn to shun the gaming table as they would pestilence, to proceed in the plain path of honour and integrity, and to know that there can be no true happiness in a departure from the line of virtue. Narrative of the case of Mr. Edward Bird, who is executed for murder. Mr. Bird was born at Windsor in Berkshire, and descended of respectable parents, who, having first sent him to Westminster School, then removed him to Eton College. When he had finished his studies, he was sent to make the tour of France and Italy, and on his return to England was honoured with the commission of a lieutenant in a regiment of horse. Before he had been long in the army, he began to associate with abandoned company of both sexes, which finally led to the commission of the crime which cost him his life. On the 10th of January, 1719, he was indicted at the Old Bailey for the murder of Samuel Loxton. It appeared on his trial that he had taken a woman of the town to a bagno in Silver Street, where Loxton was waiter. Early in the morning he ordered a bath to be got ready, but Loxton, being busy, sent another waiter, at whom Bird, in a fit of passion, made several passes with his sword, which he avoided by holding the door in his hand. But the prisoner ran after him, threw him downstairs, and broke some of his ribs. On this the master and mistress of the house, and Loxton, went into the room, and attempted to appease him. But Bird, enraged that the bath had not been prepared the moment he ordered it, seized his sword, which lay by the bedside, and stabbing Loxton, he fell backwards and died immediately, on which the offender was taken into custody and committed to Newgate. He was to have been tried in October, but pleading that he was not ready with his defence, the trial was put off to December, 
and then till January, on his physician making affidavit that he was too ill to be removed from his chamber. Being convicted on the clearest evidence, he received sentence of death, but great interest being made in his behalf, he was reprieved, and it was thought he would have been pardoned on condition of transportation, but for the intervention of the following circumstance. The friends of Loxton, hearing that a reprieve was granted, advised his widow to lodge an appeal at the bar of the court of King's Bench, and she went thither with some friends to give security for that purpose. But the relations of Bird, hearing what was intended, were ready in court, with witnesses to depose that he, this was the second wife of Loxton, the first still living. This being the fact, the court refused to admit the appeal, as the second could not be a lawful wife. This affair occasioned so much clamour that Bird was ordered for execution on Monday, the 23rd of February on the night preceding which he took a dose of poison. But that, not operating as he had expected, he stabbed himself in several places. Yet, however, he lived till the morning, when he was taken to Tyburn in a morning coach, attended by his mother and the ordinary of Newgate. As he had paid little attention to the instructions of the ordinary while under confinement, so he seemed equally indifferent to his advice in the last moments of his life. Being indulged to stay an hour in the coach with his mother, he was put into the cart, where he asked for a glass of wine. But being told that it could not be had, he begged a pinch of snuff, which he took with apparent unconcern, wishing health to those who stood near him. He then rehearsed the Apostles' Creed, and being tied up, was launched into eternity on the above-mentioned 23rd of February, 1719. He was executed in the, his twenty-seventh year of age. He declined making any speech, but delivered the following paper to his friends the day before his execution. It will be expected that I should say something at this time, as to the fact I am going to suffer for. I do not pretend to say I did not kill the deceased, but humbly conceive that both the laws of God and man will justify self-defense which I call God to witness, in whose arms of mercy I am now going to throw myself. Unhappy is the gentleman who falls into such hands, for there was not one evidence for the king that was not manifestly perjured, as I have faithfully set forth in my printed case, with all the justice of a person expecting nothing less than death was capable of. And it is also as evident that the proper evidences on my side were never called. I wish I could persuade myself that mismanagement did not proceed from the infidelity of my attorney employed in my trial. For it appears but too evident that he never made one regular step toward my interest, and I wish I could aver that he did not arm my enemies against me. After all this, his majesty, in his great wisdom, thought fit to grant me a reprieve and order me for transportation. But the restless malice of my enemies would not fix here. The pretended widow of the deceased lodges an appeal against me. How she had a right so to do, I leave those gentlemen learned in the law to determine. Yet this 
with her fallacious petition, found entrance to the royal fountain, and turned that former stream of mercy from me, causing his majesty to recede from his first degree of mercy, and order my execution, under which sentence I still, with all humility, submit. Another reflection I am credibly informed is cast upon me, in order to make my load the greater, which is that I was frequently visited during my confinement, and ever since my conviction, by lewd and infamous women. I cannot say that I have not been visited by diverse women, but do not know them to be such. Some of them were relations, and others persons who had business with me relating to my unhappy circumstances. What will not malice invent? There is one thing more which I omitted in my printed case, relating to my adversary's evidence, disposing that the deceased Loxen fell without the door, which I declare solemnly is utterly false. For what was done was in the room. I was not off from my bed when the accident happened, and when he dropped he fell backwards upon the bed. I might take notice of many more false aspersions, but will omit them, having, I thank my God, forgiven them all. In the next place, it will be expected that I say something of my religion. I declare that I die a Protestant, and of the communion of the Church of England, whose doctrines teach me to forgive my enemies, which sincerely I do, humbly begging, at the same time, that all those who through inadvertency, heat of blood, or any juvenile folly I have offended, will do the same by me. As for the manifold reflections cast upon me since my confinement, the pretended widow's violent prosecution, the farrier's notoriously false affidavit, and all the other offences committed against me, I heartily forgive them. And to conclude, I wish all gentlemen would only weigh the fatal cause of my unhappy exit, and avoid all such houses where the scene of this misfortune was first laid. Let me be an example to them to avoid those rocks I have split upon, that they may, with less difficulty than I have found it, be able to compose their thoughts, which I thank God I have done, through the assistance of His divine Spirit, and sink into a willing resignation to His divine will. Edward Bird this unfortunate youth seems to have fallen, sacrificed to the irregularity and violence of his own passions, to the pride of his heart, and his love of lawless pleasure. Hence let the youth who read this be taught to walk in the plain paths of sobriety and discretion, neither turning aside to the right hand nor to the left. His taking poison and stabbing himself to defeat the execution of the law is a strong proof of that pride of heart we have mentioned. He could be guilty of a crime deserving of the utmost ignominy, but dreaded to sustain it. Humility, then, is another doctrine to be learnt from the fate of this man. The situation of Bird's mother in her attending him to Tyburn must have been dreadful beyond all expression. Mr. Bird had been well educated, and ought to have made a different return to the care of his parents. Women in general, however, should consider 
that it is by a religious education that the mind of the child is most likely to be guarded from the contamination of vice. The sacred maxim will hold good in most instances, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart therefrom. Singular case of Catherine Jones, who is tried for bigamy and acquitted. Catherine Jones was indicted at the Old Bailey on the 5th of September, 1719, for marrying Constantine Boone during the life of her former husband, John Rowland. Proof was made that she was married to Rowland in the year 1713 at a house in the Mint, Southwark, and that six years afterwards, while her husband was abroad, she was again married in the same house to Constantine Boone, but Rowland, soon returning to England, caused his wife to be indicted for that crime. The prisoner did not hesitate to acknowledge the double marriage, but insisted that the latter was illegal, as Boone was an hermaphrodite, and had been shown as such at Southwark and Bartholomew's fairs, and at other places. To prove this, a person swore that he knew Boone when a child, and that his, or her, mother, dressed it in girl's apparel, and caused it to be instructed in needlework, till it had attained the age of twelve years, when it turned man and went to sea. These last words were those of the deposition, and the fact was confirmed by Boone, who appeared in court, acknowledged being a hermaphrodite, and having been publicly shown in that character. Other witnesses deposed that the female sex prevailed over that of the male in the party in question, on which the jury acquitted the prisoner. It is impossible to describe how much this affair was subject to public conversation at, and long after, the time that it happened, and it would be idle to make any serious remarks on it. We can only express our astonishment that a hermaphrodite should think of such a glaring absurdity as taking a wife. Account of William Spigot and Thomas Phillips, who were hanged for robbing on the highway. At the sessions held at the Old Bailey in the month of January, 1720, William Spigot and Thomas Phillips were indicted for committing several robberies on the highway but they refused to plead unless the effects taken from them when they were apprehended were returned but this being directly contrary to an act of fourth and fifth year of king william and queen mary entitled quote, an act for encouraging the apprehending of highwaymen the court informed them that their demand could not be complied with still however they refused to plead and no argument could convince them of the absurdity of such an obstinate procedure, on which the court ordered that the judgment ordained by law in such cases should be read, which is to the following purpose, quote, that the prisoner shall be sent to the prison from whence he came, and be put into a mean room, stopped from the light, and shall there be laid on the bare ground without any litter, straw, or other covering, and without any garment about him except something to hide his privy members. He shall lie upon his back, his head shall be covered, and his feet shall be bare. One 
of his arms shall be drawn with a cord to one side of the room, and the other arm to the other side, and his legs shall be served in a like manner. Then there shall be laid upon his body as much iron or stone as he can bear, and more. And the first day after he shall have three morsels of barley bread without any drink, and the second day he shall be allowed to drink as much as he can at three times of the water that is next to the prison door, except running water, without any bread, and this shall be his diet till he dies. And he, against whom this judgment shall be given, forfeit all his goods to the king. By an act passed in 1772, it is determined that persons refusing to plead shall be deemed guilty, as if convicted by a jury, an alteration that does honour to modern times. The reading of his sentence producing no effect, they were ordered back to Newgate, there to be pressed to death. But when they came into the press-room, Phillips begged to be taken back to plead a favour that was granted, though it might have been denied to him. But Spigot was put under the press, where he continued half an hour with three hundred and fifty pounds weight on his body, but on the addition of fifty pounds more he likewise begged to plead. In consequence hereof they were brought back and again indicted, when the evidence being clear and positive against them, they were convicted, received sentence of death, and were executed at Tyburn on the 8th of February, 1723. William Spigot was about twenty-seven years of age when he suffered, was a native of Hereford, but coming to London he apprenticed himself to a cabinet-maker. He was a married man, and had three children living at the time of his fatal exit. He and Phillips were hanged for robbing Charles Sibbald on Finchley Common, and were convicted principally on the evidence of Joseph Lindsay, a clergyman of abandoned character, who had been of their party. One Burroughs, a lunatic, who had escaped from Bedlam, was likewise concerned with them, but afterwards publicly spoke of the affair which occasioned their being taken into custody, and when it was known that Burroughs was disordered in his mind, he was sent back to Bedlam. Thomas Phillips, aged thirty-three years, was a native of Bristol, totally uneducated, and being sent to sea when very young, he served under Lord Torrington, when he attacked and took the Spanish fleet in the Mediterranean Sea, near the harbour of Cadiz. Phillips, returning to England, became acquainted with Spigot and Lindsay, in company with whom he committed a great number of robberies on the highway. Phillips once boasted, he and Spigot robbed above a hundred passengers one night, whom they obliged to come out of different wagons, and having bound them, placed them by each other on the side of the road but this story is too absurd to be believed. While under sentence of death, Phillips behaved in the most hardened and abandoned manner. He paid no regard to anything that the minister said to him, and swore and sung songs while the other prisoners were engaged in acts of devotion. And afterwards, toward the close of his life, when his companions became more serious, he grew still more wicked, and yet, when at the place of execution he said he did not fare to die, for he was in no doubt of going to heaven. Narrative of the singular case of John Meff, who was hanged for returning from transportation. 
This offender had been taken into custody for committing robbery near London, but as it happened at a time within the limits of an act of grace passed in the reign of King George I, it was not thought necessary to indict him, and he would have been discharged without further ceremony, but it appeared that he had been transported for another crime, and returned before the expiration of his time, wherefore he was indicted for this offence, and on an act then lately made, for the effectual transportation of felons, and his person being identified, he was found guilty, received sentence of death, and was executed at Tyburn on the 11th of September, 1721. The following is an account which he wrote between his condemnation and the day of his execution. I was born in London of French parents who had fled hither for protection when the French Protestants were driven out of France by Louis Fourteenth. I was put apprentice to a weaver, my father having continued about twelve years in England, went with the rest of the family to Holland. I served my time faithfully, and with the approbation of my master. Soon after I came to work for myself, I married, but my business not being sufficient to maintain myself, my wife, and children, I was willing to try what I could at thieving. I followed this practice till I was apprehended, tried, and condemned for housebreaking. But, as I was going to the place of execution, the hangman was arrested, and I was brought back to Newgate. It was thought that this was my contrivance to put a stop to public justice, but I was so far from being any ways concerned in it that I knew nothing of it till it was done. This might have been a happy turn for me if I had made a right use of it for my sentence of death was changed for that of transportation, and indeed I took up a solemn resolution to lead an honest and regular course of life, and to resist all the persuasions of my comrades to the contrary. But this resolution continued but a short time after the fear of death was vanished. I believe, however, that if I had been safe landed in America, my ruin might have been prevented, but the ship which carried me and other convicts, was taken by pirates. They would have persuaded me and some of the others to sign a paper in order to become pirates. But we refusing, they put me and eight more ashore on a desert island uninhabited, where we must have perished with hunger, if by good fortune an Indian canoe had not arrived there. We waited till the Indians were gone up the island, and then— Getting into the vessel, we sailed from one small island to another, till we reached the coast of America. Not choosing to settle in any of the plantations there, but preferring the life of a sailor, I shipped myself on board a vessel that carried merchandise from Virginia and South Carolina to Barbados, Jamaica, and other of His Majesty's islands. And thus I lived a considerable time but at last, being over-desirous to see how my wife and children fared in England, I was resolved to return at all adventures. Upon my arrival here, I quickly fell into my former wicked practices, and it was not long before I was committed to Newgate on suspicion of robbing a person near London. But, by the assistance of a certain bricklayer, I broke out of prison and went to Hatfield, where I lay concealed for some time, but at last was discovered and taken again by the same bricklayer who had procured my escape. Some evil genius attended me, 
I was certainly infatuated, or I had never continued in a place where I was so likely to be discovered. My father is now a gardener in Amsterdam. Tis an addition to my misfortune that I cannot see him and my mother before I die. But I hope, when he hears of my unhappy end, he will keep my children by my first wife from starving. My present wife is able, by her industry, to bring up her own offspring, for she has been an honest, careful woman during the nine months I have been married to her, and has often pressed me to go over to Ireland and lead a regular and sober life. It had been well for me if I had taken her advice. I have had enough of this restless and tumultuous world, and hope I am now going to a better. I am very easy and resigned to the will of Providence, not doubting I have made my peace with heaven. I thank God that I have not been molested by my fellow prisoners, with the least cursing or swearing in the condemned hold, but having had an opportunity of employing every moment of my time in preparing for a future state. The case of this malefactor is very extraordinary, and perhaps may never be equalled by that of any other. The narrow escape he had experienced from the gallows ought to have taught him more wisdom than to have returned from transportation before the expiration of his time. But one would think there is a fatality attending the conduct of some men who seem resolutely bent on their own destruction. One truth, however, is certain. It is easy, by a steady adherence to the rules of virtue, to shun that ignominious fate which is the consequence of the breach of the laws of God and our country. The singular case of Nathaniel Hawes, who was hanged for a robbery. The subject of this narrative was a native of Norfolk, in which county he was born in the year 1701. Hawes' father was a grazer in ample circumstances, but dying while the son was an infant, a relation in Hertfordshire took care of his education. At a proper age he was apprenticed to an upholsterer in London, but becoming connected with people of bad character, and thus acquiring an early habit of vice, he robbed his master when he had served only two years of his time for which he was tried at the Old Bailey, and being convicted of stealing to the amount of thirty-nine shillings, he was sentenced to seven years' transportation. But the sentence thus awarded against Hawes was not carried into execution owing to the following circumstance. A man named Phillips had encouraged the unhappy youth in his depredations by purchasing, at a very low weight, such goods as he stole from his master but when Hawes was taken into custody, he gave information of this affair, in consequence of which a search warrant was procured, and many effects belonging to Hawes's master were found in Phillips's possession. Hereupon application was made to the king, and a free pardon was granted to Hawes, whereby he was rendered a competent evidence against Phillips, who was tried for receiving stolen goods and transported for fourteen years. We are sorry to relate the sequel of this tale. Hawes, during his confinement in Newgate, had made such bad connections as greatly contributed to the contamination of his morals, and soon after his release he connected himself with a set of fellows who acted under the direction of Jonathan Wild, and having made a particular acquaintance with one John James, they joined in the commission of a number of robberies. 
After an uncommon share of success for some days, they quarrelled on the division of the booty, and in consequence of which each acted on his own account. Some little time after they had thus separated, Hawes, being apprehensive that James would impeach him, applied to Jonathan Wilde and informed against his old acquaintance, on which James was taken into custody, tried, convicted, and executed, by an act of fourth and fifth William and Mary, for the more effectual conviction of highwaymen, the evidence of accomplices is allowed, but the evidence cannot claim his liberty unless two or more of his accomplices are convicted, but may be imprisoned during the pleasure of the court. So, notwithstanding this conviction, the court sentenced Hawes to be imprisoned in New Prison, and that jail was preferred to Newgate, because the prisoners in the latter had threatened to murder Hawes for being an evidence against James. Soon after this commitment, Hawes and another fellow made their escape, and entering into partnership committed a variety of robberies, particularly in the road between Hackney and Shoreditch. This connection, like the former, lasted but a short time, a dispute on dividing their ill-gotten gains occasioned a separation. Soon after this dissolution of the partnership, Hawes went alone to Finchley Common, where meeting a gentleman riding to town, he presented a pistol to his breast, and commanded him instantly to dismount, that he might search him for his money. The gentleman offered him four shillings, on which Hawes swore the most horrid oaths, and threatened instant death if he did not immediately submit. The gentleman quitted his horse, and in that same moment seized the pistol, which he snatched from the hand of the robber, and presenting it to him, told him to expect death if he did not surrender himself. Hawes, who was now as terrified as he had been insolent, made no opposition, and the driver of a cart coming up just at that juncture, he, he was easily made prisoner, conveyed to London, and committed to Newgate. When the session came on, and he was brought to the bar, he refused to plead to the indictment, alleging the following reason for so doing, visit, that he would die as he had lived like a gentleman. Quote, the people, he said, who apprehended me seized a suit of fine clothes, which I intend to have gone to the gallows in, and unless they are returned I will not plead, for no one shall say that I was hanged in a dirty shirt and a ragged coat. Unquote. On this he was told what would be the consequences of his contempt of legal authority. But this making no impression on him, sentence was pronounced that he should be pressed to death. Whereupon he was taken from the court, and being laid on his back, sustained a load of two hundred and fifty pounds weight for about seven minutes. But, unable any longer to bear the pain, he entreated that he might be conducted back to the court, which being complied with, he pleaded not guilty. But the evidence against him being complete, he was convicted and sentenced to die. After conviction, his behavior was very improper for one in his situation. He told the other capital convicts that he would die like a hero, and behaved in the same thoughtless way till the arrival of the warrant for his execution, after which his conduct was not altogether scandalous. He owned to the ordinary of Newgate that he was induced to refuse to plead to his indictment that the other prisoners might 
deem him a man of honour, and not for the idle vanity of being hanged in fine clothes. He acknowledged many robberies which he had committed, but charged Jonathan Wilde as being the principal author of his ruin by purchasing the stolen goods. He likewise owned that he had been base enough to inform against persons who were innocent, particularly a gentleman's servant who was then in custody, but he did not discover any signs of contrition for this or any other of his offences. He was executed at Tyburn on the 22nd of December, 1721. The end of part six of